Well, hey, my name is Shane Drury. I'm the associate pastor here at Southern Hills. And many of you know that for a number of years, I was a high school pastor. And over the years as a high school pastor, I had many interesting students, okay? Um, I also had some interesting leaders, adult volunteers along the way. It takes a pretty unique individual to want to hang out with teenagers week in and week out as an adult. I love to do it myself, but one of my favorite adult volunteers over the years was a gentleman named Lee. Uh, Lee was a bit older, and he was one of the gentlest, humblest, kindest, most servant-hearted men you'd ever meet in your life. And he was really funny. And one of the unique things about Lee is that he had a glass eye that he could take out and put back in whenever he wanted to. Now, as you can imagine, the, the boys in his small group, they were fascinated by this. They thought it was almost like a superpower that he had. And occasionally, on Sunday nights, when we would gather together for our weekly time of worship, before the worship service or after the worship service, uh, maybe out in the, in the lobby, I would hear a group of students screaming. And I would walk out there, and I would see Lee holding in his hand his eye, and a group of students' eyes this big. And Lee would usually say something like this as he did it, I have a question for you. (laughs) Right? It's kind of like dad joke to the next level. And students would eventually laugh, and and we would all laugh. And so Lee had a great sense sense of humor about this. But at the same time, being without an eye, I know caused great difficulty for him at times. Because our eyes are one of the most valuable physical things that we possess. And as valuable as our eyes are to us, as we return to the book of Mark this morning, we will hear our Lord give us a stern warning that it's better to lose an eye than to fall into sin or to lead others into sin. And I hope and pray that we will take this warning very seriously today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We're in a series going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as we have seen up to this point, Jesus has called out his 12 disciples. They have walked with him. They have seen him do miraculous things. They have confessed him as Messiah. And he has told them of his impending death and resurrection. He has called them to deny themselves and to carry their cross. But like you and me, they are sinners. And they still don't fully get it. And they still don't fully do it. In fact, in just a few verses preceding the passage we're diving into today, we see that Jesus' 12 disciples were sinfully arguing about who was the greatest. And while doing this, leading one another into sin. And now in Mark 9, starting in verse 42, Jesus gives us one of his most intense teachings, calling his disciples to cut 
off sin. Cut off sin. So as we open to Mark chapter 9, verse 42, we first see our need to cut off sin that causes others to fall away. We see our need to cut off sin that causes others to fall away. Would you read verse 42 with me? Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. That's a serious and terrifying statement from the heart and from the mouth of Jesus. It's a a stern warning to anyone, to any believer who leads another astray away from the Lord. The punishment for it, Jesus says, will be so bad that it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be dropped into the sea to drown and to die. That's how horrible this sin is that Jesus is speaking of. Now we need to note that he's talking to his disciples here. He's talking to the twelve. And the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said this, and they would have been horrified upon hearing this. Because they knew this is exactly what happened to the leaders of an insurrection under the early zealot leader, Judas the Galilean. The Romans took these zealots and they drowned them in this very way in a lake. So in their imaginations, the disciples could see this horrifying picture. They could see the horrifying image of a man with a giant millstone tied to his neck, being dropped into the sea, sinking down into darkness, struggling, struggling, and then hanging motionless in the darkness, swaying to and fro from the currents, hidden from the world in darkness. Man, it's a horrible picture, a horrible picture. But here Jesus chose to use this terrible and graphic image to make a very serious point to his disciples and to us that it would be better to be drowned like this than to cause a little one who believes in him to fall away. Now this is what Jesus says in verse 42. We've gained a pretty clear understanding, I think, of the, the consequences and the discipline that will come to one who does this. But we need to gain further understanding of the first part of this verse. What is, it, what is meant by causing one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away. Well, first let's consider the phrase little ones who believe. And so obviously Jesus is talking about those who believe in him, those who are believers, uh, leading someone who is a believer to fall away. But he uses the phrase little ones. And the phrase little ones here, we have to understand, does not exclusively refer to children. Okay? It certainly would include children who were believers, absolutely. But it's not exclusive to that. In this text and in this context, it also refers to common and ordinary disciples of Jesus Christ. Particularly, though, 
those who are newer in their faith, those who may be weak in their faith, those who may be immature in their faith. And as I said, the warning is for those who would cause these disciples to fall away, and those being believers. And I think this is partly why the warning is so strong and the consequences are so great here for a believer to lead another believer to fall away. Because, friends, we would expect this from the world, right? We would expect this from an unbeliever to lead a believer away from Jesus because they're not following Jesus. They're following the way of the world. But for a believer to lead an unbeliever away from Christ, particularly for a believer to lead a new and weak and immature believer away from Christ. I think this is one of the the most disturbing and offensive things to Jesus. And as we've seen, there will be great discipline for believers who do this. Now, we've looked at little ones who believe in me. What does it specifically mean for a believer to cause another one to fall away, as our text says in verse 42? Well, the word cause here means to entice, to tempt, to trip up, to put a stumbling block in the way, or to provoke. And to fall away means to to sin, to fall into disbelief, to turn away from Jesus. So we put the two together, uh, cause and fall away. And so what we're talking about here is enticing, tempting, uh, provoking another believer to fall into sin, to disbelieve in Jesus, to fall away from Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says it here. And as we've seen, the discipline for this will be greater than having a millstone. A millstone, this giant stone that weighs more than a ton, that was used to grind grain pushed by donkeys. It would be better for a person to have this giant stone tied to their neck and be thrown into the sea to certain death than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away. Now this image and this warning is so strong and it's so severe that It concerns me that many of us who have grown up in the church may hear this and think, well, this warning is not for me. This is for the bad sinners. You know what I'm saying? Well, well, friends, can I remind you this morning that we are the bad sinners. We are the bad sinners. And this text certainly applies to us. And I can say that with such certainty and with such confidence because as I have mentioned just moments ago, we see Jesus' disciples who walked with him for three years doing this very thing, falling into sin and leading one another away from Jesus through arguing about who the greatest is. And we too can lead others into sin and away from Jesus if we're not careful. Well, how so? Well, John MacArthur gives us four ways that we as believers, four different ways that we as believers can lead other believers to fall away from Jesus. Allow me to walk through them with you. Number one, one way we can lead others to fall away from Jesus is through direct temptation. Direct temptation. 
Now, this is the most obvious, and it includes openly inviting a believer directly into sin. Openly inviting a believer directly into sin. It could look like telling or encouraging another person to cheat, to to lie, to gossip, to steal, to lust. It could look like uh, directly leading another believer into godly, ungodly activities like doing drugs, impure sexual relations, disobeying one's parents, dishonoring one's spouse. It's as simple as, hey, friend, watch this. Listen to this, smoke this, hide this, sneak this. Who cares? Just do this. Directly leading another believer into sin. And so this morning, I ask you, friends, and I ask that God would convict your heart, convict my heart. Are you leading others into direct temptation, enticing them to fall away? A second way believers can lead another to fall away is through indirect temptation. Indirect temptation. Now, indirect temptation may not come from a heart that is intending to lead another to fall away, but when sinful and careless actions can certainly provoke others and tempt them into sin and away from Jesus. Now, this could include provoking others to fall away from Jesus into sinful anger through our unkindness to them, through our inattention to them, through our lack of affection, our indifference, our overbearing expectations, or as a result of our sinful anger poured on to them. We can indirectly provoke them and tempt them and entice them into sinful anger and away from Jesus. Ephesians 6.4 comes to mind here. The Apostle Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now on this point, um, can I say a direct word to parents, including me? Parents. Parents, it's never okay to harshly yell at your children in sinful anger. Did you hear me, friends? It is never okay to harshly yell at your children in sinful anger. It is a sin, and you should not do it. It's never okay to harshly spank your children in sinful anger. Friends, you are enticing them and tempting them and leading them away from Jesus when you do this. Now, it's certainly okay if your child is about to run out into a street and there are cars coming down the road. It's certainly okay for you to yell at them and to stop because of the good intentions you have. But man, if your child is simply not doing what you want them to do, or even not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it is still not okay for you to harshly yell at your children in sinful anger. Is that how you want your spouse to speak to you when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing for your spouse? Is that how you want your boss to speak to you when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing at work? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Friends, your children, they're not your prisoners. You are not the prison warden. Your children are not your servants. You are not the king or the queen. So do not speak to them this way. 
You are provoking them to anger. You are leading them away from Jesus. And you are sinning. And Lord, help me as I call us to this in this moment. Now, I'm not saying do not correct your children. I'm not saying do not discipline your children. God commands us to do this. We just heard this in Ephesians 6, the verse that I read, right? But it must be in a spirit of grace and gentleness and humility and in love, seeking to call them back to Jesus rather than pushing them further away from Jesus in their disobedience. And so, if your child disobeys you, if your child needs discipline, man, don't grab them by the arm and spank them in anger, especially in public, okay? That should never happen in public. But man, even in the confines of your own home, do not grab that child viciously by the arm and spank them in anger in the moment. Instead, ask that child to go to their room maybe. Take a moment. Calm down. Pray. Ask the Lord for help and for grace. And then calmly walk into the room with that child. And speak to them graciously about their sin and their need for a Savior. And call them back to Jesus. And give them the discipline calmly that they may need. But man, then hug your child and pray for them and love them and call them back to Jesus. When we speak harshly and angrily and sin to our kids, we are enticing them and leading them away. And friends, what we'll see is if we speak to our children in such a way, it won't be long until they're speaking to their siblings like this, until they're speaking to you like this. And then their teen wars especially will be war in your home. So from the time your children are very small, speak graciously and loving and kindly to your kids, even in their disobedience. And if you do not, if you do not, I do not at times, if you do not, sit your children down and apologize to them. Confess your sin to them. Reminds me of a story I heard a friend of mine tell. Uh, he's a pastor. He has 10 kids. He drives a big white van, uh, like some other great families in this church that I know. He said one day he was driving, and the van was full of children, his wife. They were laughing. They were having a good time. Someone called him. He began to talk on the phone to this person. And as he talked, he found it difficult to hear. And he said his anger level began to increase. How could these people not see or understand that he was on the phone and be quiet? And eventually his anger built. And he said, just a second, please. And he pressed mute on his phone. And he said he turned his head and said, Hey, would you guys shut up back there? I'm on the phone. And he said, you know what? I got the silence I asked for. I got the silence I asked for. In fact, I could hear my wife sniffle as tears rolled down her cheeks. And he said, I knew I made a mistake. And so he said he got home, he called all of his children, 
into the living room, told him to sit down. Required multiple couches, right? Because there are 10 kids. He said he confessed his sin to them. He said he, he apologized. He told them that he was wrong, that it was sinful for him to speak to them that way. And that he had lost his temper and there was no reason for it. And he asked them to forgive him. And they did. And they came together. And they hugged it out, right? And reconciliation took place. And so friends, perhaps some of you, the first thing you need to do when you leave here this day is to sit your children down on the couch and to confess to them your sin and how you have harshly and sinfully spoken to them in anger at times and over the years and ask for their forgiveness and bring yourself to repentance to restore unity and reconciliation in your family. Don't put off today. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. So we can lead others into sin through direct temptation, through indirect temptation. MacArthur says we can also lead others into sin by setting a sinful example. By setting a sinful example. Now this certainly too applies to parenting, but it extends beyond that as well. Um, as believers, we can set a poor example for other believers who are friends, who are co-workers, who are family members, who are church members. With our speech, with our conduct, how we live our lives, we can set a poor example for them that may entice them and lead them away from Christ. But that's not how it should be. It should be more like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Man, that's a great thing that fathers should be able to say to their children, right? For husbands to be able to say to their wives, follow me as I follow Christ. And friends, it's a great diagnostic question for us to think about how we're doing in our walk with Jesus right now. Man, if my children, if my coworkers, if my family members, if my community group members, if they followed Jesus right now exactly as I am following Jesus, would that be a good thing? Would that be a good thing? John Maxwell rightly says, we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And so, living out what we say we know is of key importance. So are you leading others to follow Christ? Are you leading others to follow Christ with your example? Or are you leading them to fall away? And then the fourth and last way MacArthur says that we can entice others into sin and to fall away from Jesus is simply failing to stimulate righteousness, MacArthur says. Failing to stimulate righteousness so here we're not talking about sins of commission as much. We're talking about sins of omission, such as not encouraging others towards godliness, not encouraging our children to read God's word, not consistently taking our family to church, not sharing with others how God is working in our lives or how we see God working in their lives, not encouraging others to press on in the midst of suffering. In Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, we're told to stir one another up towards love and good works 
and to encourage one another. This very thing can help a believer from falling away from Jesus. But if we neglect to do so, especially within the body of Christ, man, it can entice a believer to fall away. And so in any of these ways that we have mentioned, we can simply tempt another believer to fall away from Jesus. And let us not remember, Jesus says, it would be better to die a horrible death than to do these things, than to lead a believer away from him. And so, this sin we must cut off. We must cut off this sin. And that takes us to our next point in the text, where Jesus shifts his focus from the impact our sin has on others to the impact our sin has upon ourselves. And so here we see our need to cut off our own sin that causes us to fall away. Would you read verses 43 and through 48 with me? Jesus goes on to say, And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Man, once again, the, the, the imagery Jesus uses here, it's intense and it's horrific. He says, man, if, if your hand, if your eye, if your foot, if it causes you to, to sin, if it leads you into sin, cut it off, gouge it out, take it away. For it's better for you to enter eternal life maimed and lame and with one eye than to go to hell where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. So here we see Jesus doubling down on the seriousness of sin, right? Now it should be obvious that here in this text, Jesus is using hyperbole. It's an intentional overstatement to show the seriousness of sin and to show that, that nothing, even things of surpassing value like an eye, a foot, a hand, nothing is more important than God in obedience to him. So it should be obvious that, that Jesus is not saying literally that a person should cut off their hand or foot or gouge out their eye. But man, tragically throughout history, people have done just this in response to this text. There have been some that have emasculated themselves. There have been some that have cut off limbs, hands, feet. In fact, I was just talking to someone this week about this particular text, and they said they had a family member who worked at a hospital who had a gentleman come in one day to the emergency room who had literally cut off his hand, seeking to follow Jesus. Not only is it sad and tragic, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't matter if we cut off our, our hand, we cut off our foot. It doesn't matter if we cut off all of our limbs. We can still be the most sinful person around because the root of sin is not in our hand, in our eye, in our foot. The root of sin 
is in our heart. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. And so anytime we have a sin problem, we have more than an eye-hand-foot problem, we have a heart problem, and we need to deal with it at its deepest level. So as Kent Hughes says here, Jesus isn't calling for, for physical mutilation. Jesus isn't calling for physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification, the cutting off of harmful practices in one's life. It is true that oftentimes sinful, temptata sinful temptations that lead us to fall away from Jesus do come through our hands, through our feet, through our eyes. And here in this text, our, our, our hands uh, certainly are meant to symbolize what we do. Our feet are meant to symbolize where we go. Our eyes are meant to symbolize what we see. And what we have to understand from this text is that if our hands, feet, eyes cause us to fall away from Jesus, particularly in this text, in this context, as Jesus is saying it, it does not mean that we are like a JV Christian or like a carnal Christian, or like a second-class Christian. No, what Jesus is saying is, it leaves you in hell. It leaves you in hell. So here the call is to an initial turning from sin, and turning to Jesus in full repentance and faith, trusting in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, to be justified, to be reconciled, to be redeemed, to be made right with God. It's a choice between heaven and hell. It's a choice between heaven and hell for the unbeliever. Heaven and hell, hell where the worm dies, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, as verse 48 says. Now another powerful word image is used here in this text. The word for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna comes from the Valley of Hinnom. It was a horrific place. It was a terrible place. It was south of Jerusalem. It was where parents once sacrificed their own babies to the hideous god Molech. The practice, of course, was denounced by Jewish prophets, especially by Jeremiah, who called it the Valley of Slaughter and the Valley of Drums. The Valley of Drums because there was a continuous drumming of drums to um, phase out the, the sound of crying babies that were burning and being sacrificed. It's horrible. But then Josiah, the good king, he stopped it all by the grace of God and to the glory of God. And this site became Jerusalem's garbage dump. It was a garbage dump where fires burn continuously. They burn continuously to consume rancid food and sewage that were continually infested with worms. And so for Jews at this time, this image of fire and worms, it vividly depicted hell, this place of future eternal punishment for the wicked who do not believe and trust in Jesus. It's a place of unending torment. It's a place of eternal exclusion from the blessing of God for those who refuse to initially cut off their sin and trust in Jesus. Now, some may hear this and think, wow, that is a harsh, unjust punishment 
for sin. Eternal suffering? Really? Eternal suffering? But I think this inadequate view of both God and sin can be precisely what leads us away from God, friends. Consider a common illustration used to help more fully grasp the, uh, the, the weight of our sin and the cost of our sin and the right consequences of our sin. Uh, imagine that one day you are at work and you get very angry at your boss. And in this discussion with your boss, you smack your boss in the face. Now in this circumstance, your boss is an authority, right? And so what will be the consequence? Well, it's very likely that you will lose your job, one. And also, uh, your, your boss may call the police. So let's say he calls the police. The policeman shows up. You begin talking to the policeman about the situation. You get angry with the policeman, and you slap him in the face. Well, he's a higher authority, right? So what's the consequence? Well, the consequence is going to be greater. You're now arrested, and you're going to go to jail. And so this happens, and your day in court comes, and you go before the judge. And in discussing this with the judge, you get angry, and you slap him in the face. You have an anger problem, friends. Come to Southern Hills and get biblical counseling, okay? <laughs> We're waiting for you. But what's going to be the consequence? Well, what maybe was somewhat of a shorter prison term has just become longer and greater, right? Why? Because the judge is a higher authority. And then just for the sake of craziness in the story, let's say you're walking out of the courtroom and the President of the United States just happens to be walking down the hallway. And just in your rage and anger, you go rage monster and you smack him in the face. Well, now what's the consequence going to be? Man, you are going away for a long time, like throw away the key, right? Why? Because the president is the highest authority in the land. But friends, all joking aside and, and much uh, greater seriousness, now imagine what would happen if you smacked the almighty, all-powerful, holy and sovereign God of the universe in the face. The greatest of great authorities, the infinite one, what would the right consequence be in this circumstance? Man, it would be eternal punishment separated from the blessing of God. And so we have to understand the seriousness of our sin to have a desire to cut it off. I think another way that we can see the magnitude of our sin is to consider the magnitude of the solution for our sin. Okay? To see the magnitude of our sin, consider the magnitude of the solution for your sin. And what was that solution? See, your sin was so great. My sin was so great that it required the perfect spotless, blameless Son of God to be wrongly arrested, falsely accused, insulted, mocked, spit upon, stripped naked, beaten, flogged, and nailed to a cross. That's how bad your sin is, friends. That's how bad my sin is. 
It nailed Jesus to the cross. It was the only solution to rightly deal with it. Man, that should show us the magnitude of our sin and the seriousness of it. I'll never forget when I grasped this on a deeper level as a new believer. I was a freshman in college, and uh, one of my best friends and I, Ted Bachman, who was a junior in high school, decided over spring break we were going to road trip to Dallas from Peoria, Illinois, to see our old youth pastor who had moved there and lived there. Now, for some reason, our parents agreed to this idea, okay? And we got in my 1984 Nissan, and we began to drive uh, down 55 onto 44. My car broke down in the middle of St. Louis. We hopped a fence. We went into a gas station. We got a gallon of water. All right, the story goes on. But when we got there, it happened to fall on Easter weekend. And so we went to the Good Friday service at our, youth, our old youth pastor's church. And it was a pretty big church, and, and they did this pretty elaborate passion play. And as a new believer, I didn't even know what that meant and, and what it exactly was, was all about. But man, they, they in, in great detail and, and very powerfully um, kind of went through the last days of Jesus, the last moments where he was beaten, where he was flogged, where he was nailed to the cross. It was a very intense and very serious service. And at the end of the service, after Jesus was nailed to the cross and the cross was raised up, the lights were lower and someone who was dressed as a Roman guard walked to the front and center of the stage and all he said was, people, go home. And with the lights down low, people quietly and slowly walked out of the auditorium. And I remember riding home back to my youth pastor's house that day, sitting in the back seat. It was kind of a quiet ride, somber still, um, looking out the window. And I remember it hitting me really for the first time that, man, not only did Jesus die for my sin, he died because of my sin. He died because of my sin. My beloved Savior, the one that I love and adore, the one who gave his life for me and endured all that suffering that I had just watched, man, he experienced that because of my sin. And man, it broke me. And man, it showed me the seriousness and the magnitude of my sin. But it also showed me the magnitude of Christ's love for me, knowing that he willingly sacrificed and gave his life to be the solution for my sin. And man, after that, I'll tell you, I was not perfect. I didn't become this perfect saint, but I had this new desire, this new motivation, this new joy to cut off sin and to follow my Savior because I realized the seriousness of my sin and the greatness of my Savior's love for me. And friends, we need to do the same thing each and every day. We need to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves. But before we realize how good the good news is, we have to realize how bad the bad news is, right? And that is that we are all sinners and that 
We cannot do anything on our own power to be reconciled and forgiven and made right with God. But praise be to God for the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us for our sins. I think this reality, this truth, is packaged well and packaged concisely uh, by a pastor named Tim Keller. He describes the magnitude of our sin and the magnitude of God's love well by saying, We are far more sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are far more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's powerful, isn't it? That's the gospel right there, friends. And so this is what Christ has done for you. This is what Christ has done for me. Why would we not cut off our sin today, both believer and unbeliever alike? And so question for you today, friends. Where are your feet carrying you that leads to unnecessary temptation? What hidden activities and habits occupy your hands that if someone else saw, you would be ashamed of? What are your eyes reading, watching, looking at that is causing you to fall away from Jesus? No matter what it is, no matter how valuable it is, no matter how pleasurable it is, man, cut it off today so you do not fall into death or lead others into death away from Jesus. Take the extreme measure, cut it off so you can have life. Maybe some specific measures that some may need to take today. Some extreme specific measures to take today. Perhaps it's getting rid of your, your smartphone to cut off lust. Perhaps it's emptying your liquor cabinet to cut off drunkenness. Perhaps it's getting out of a relationship to cut off impurities. Perhaps it is choosing to ask for accountability to help cut off speaking to your children in a harsh and ungodly way. Whatever it is, friends, Jesus this morning is calling you to take the extreme measure and cut it off for your good, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. And so can I encourage you to confess your sins to God today. Confess your sins to one another. Richard Baxter, a great Puritan from centuries ago, said the longer you delay, the more your sin gets strength and rooting. If you cannot bend a twig, how will you be able to bend it when it's a tree? Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. And so we've seen our need to cut off our sin, which leads others to fall away. We've seen our need to cut off our sin that leads us to fall away. And lastly, lastly and much more quickly, we see in our text our need not to cut off, but we see our need to put on salt, which brings peace to self and to others. Listen to the last two verses. Verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Now, much could be said here about these last two verses, but to summarize what Jesus is saying, in verse 49, where he says, for everyone will be salted and everyone will be uh, salted with fire. 
Salt and fire here appear to be symbols. They appear to be symbols of the trials and the sufferings that believers will experience as they wholeheartedly offer themselves as sacrifices to God. And then in verse 50, Jesus once again mentions salt, but he uses it as a different analogy. He's talking about salt that functions as a preservative. So he's calling us as believers to be a preservative in this rotten and decaying world. And to maintain our saltiness and and, and not to lose it, as is mentioned in, in verse 50, we must embrace the sacrificial life that Christ has called us to. We must uh, embrace the persecution, persecution and trials and sufferings that we endure in this world. And we must continue to draw close to our Lord and our God. And if we do, we will not fall away into sin. We will not lead others into sin. There will not be chaos in our heart and in our home. Instead, we will live at peace with one another rather than living in chaos. And so friends, in response to what Jesus has said to us this morning through his word, may we see the seriousness of our sin and the effect it has on our own hearts and others. May we be in awe that Jesus would lay down his life for us while we were still sinners in his great love for us. And may we be compelled to cut off all sin that leads others away and that leads us away so that we may glorify God and be at peace with one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm reminded by this passage that your son, Jesus, is a God of grace and truth. And today we've heard much truth about our sin and the reality of where it leads us and the reality of where it leads others. And that is to fall away from you. But we thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you, Father, for the love and obedience, Jesus, that you displayed to come to this world to live a sinless life and to go to the cross taking our sin upon you, taking that punishment that we deserve that horrible punishment that you described in this text. We thank you for taking that upon yourself so that we might become righteous, receive your righteousness as you took upon our sin. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has never made that initial step of cutting off their sin and turning to Jesus and repenting and saying, Jesus, you are Lord, you are God, I am a sinner, I deserve hell, there's nothing I can do to be made right with you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. 
Thank you for making the way for me to be made right with you, to be forgiven of my sin, to be reconciled to God. Brother or sister, friend, if if that is you here today and you have never called out to Jesus and repented of your sin, put your faith and trust in him to receive the forgiveness of God, I pray this would be the day. I pray you would come speak to, to me after the service, speak to another person here that may have brought you, but don't leave here without dealing with your sin today. I pray, Father, for believers here, myself included, Lord. May we take our sin seriously. May we not let the sun go down today without confessing our sin to one another. Lord, both to those we have offended and to an encourager that can hold us accountable to our sin so that we might follow you and lead others to do the same. We thank you, Jesus, for giving us hope for giving us peace, and for allowing us to live in peace with one another through the gospel. We pray now, Lord, as we stand, that we would respond with gratitude and joyful singing for your goodness to us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.